Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the Old Testament songbook of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 16 this morning. We always say this morning, don't we, since November, and it's in the afternoon. So just say good morning, get it all out of your system today, all right? Well, what, what, comes, what words come to your mind when you dream about the best life you could ever live? So if you had to describe what that sort of life would look like, what adjectives would you use? Joyful, pleasurable, good, pleasant, beautiful, glad, secure, eternal. I think all of us could get on board with that list, right? Each one of us has a longing for that kind of life. But is that even possible? Is that sort of life even an option for us? Church, this Easter Sunday, we're going to be in Psalm 16, a psalm by King David, that ancient king of Israel. And in this psalm, we see a sort of movie trailer for the good life, a life of joy and pleasure and hope. And even though this psalm was written centuries before Christ, we see here a sneak preview into the blessings Jesus would bring his people. So follow along as I read for us Psalm 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Three D words uh, from Psalm 16 this morning. David's devotion, David's delight, and David's descendants. First up is David's devotion. Look at verse 1. He begins by crying out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is the king of Israel. He requests that the Lord be his keeper. He's going to find his safe place, his refuge in God alone. And that theme of David's utter devotion and dedication to God alone, above all other gods, is a theme of this short psalm. We see it again there in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So that, that first word, Lord, capital L, lower caps, O-R-D, 
is a special name for the God of Israel, the translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh is God's proper name, his personal name, his covenant-keeping name for his people. And so David says, Lord, Yahweh, the specific God of Israel, you are my Lord. That's a different Hebrew word. That's Adonai, meaning master. And, and so the sense is that God is a master over all things. And David is saying, including me. David proclaims here, Yahweh, this specific God, is over all. He's submitting himself not just to a generic deity, but to the one true God. And he says, Yahweh is everything good for me. Apart from him, I have nothing. Down in verse 5 and 6, David continues to show this devotion to God. He says, God alone is his portion, his cup. The language and the, the feel of this psalm is one of intimate relationship and devotion and dedication. You know, if, if you're here and you're a young person, you're a college student, you're a, a teenager, you're a, a child. Many of you, I think, have grown up in church-going homes, homes that have multiple versions of the Bible on the shelf, homes that pray before meals, homes that encourage you to believe in God and follow him. And that's a wonderful blessing, but it's not sufficient. David here is not rejoicing in a family tradition. He's not taking refuge in a generic sense of a bigger presence that will take care of him. No, he has a specific, particular relationship with a specific, particular God. The relationship David has with God is sort of like a marriage relationship. Like a man and a woman who have this exclusive relationship where they have no other lovers, no other partners. So it is with David and his Lord. And so it is for anyone who would follow after God. So when we know the one true God, we must cast off all others. All other gods, all other ultimate pursuits and follow him alone. That's what we see in verse 4, right? The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David's relationship with God is exclusive and personal, and he has devoted himself wholesale to one God at the expense of all others. Have you? I wonder, especially for those of you who have grown up listening to sermons, reading the Bible, do you have that sort of relationship with God? You may know a lot about him. You, may, you might even pray to him at times. You may have great familiarity with God, but is he the Lord of your life? Is he your master? Do you know him? David grew up in Israel. He probably grew up in a home that knew the law and followed many of the things you can read about in the Old Testament. But beyond tradition, David was devoted to God personally. So young person especially, don't rely on your parents or your teachers or your siblings for what must be your personal devotion and commitment to God. Well, as we've mentioned, David's exclusive devotion to God comes up again in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, he says. The idea here is of a, of a portion of land that would be allotted to someone. And so David is saying, my inheritance, my portion, my heritage is God. 
He doesn't see primarily God's gifts or God's benefits as his portion, though that's likely in view in this passage as well. But he's saying God himself. He has this evident contentedness in God alone. He has this intimate relationship with God where he's just overjoyed and abundantly at peace with God himself. Apart from him, he has no good thing. In verses 7 and 8, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The Lord is David's teacher. He counsels him. I love how he says, even during the nighttime. I don't know about you, but the nighttime is a time for your imagination to run wild. David's heart at nighttime is caught up with God. He says God is at his right hand, meaning God is ever present with him, ever ready to help. And so with this confidence, David says, I shall not be shaken. You can't read Psalm 16 and miss this. David has utter devotion to God alone. It's all over this psalm. Secondly, we see David's delight. I mean, do you see how affectionate and emotive this psalm is? I think we can often think of the Bible as our faith system. It's comprised of statements of belief, doctrine, and rightfully so. But do you see how David's devotion to God is not sterile or begrudging, but abundantly affectionate, joyful, This psalm is punctuated with words like joy, delight, gladness, pleasure. David's devotion to God is not merely the formal devotion of a servant to his master, but one of an enraptured soul with a beautiful God. Look at verse 6 again. David has said that God himself is his portion. And then what does he say about his portion? The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. For David, following the Lord is not just a to-do list, but something that brings pleasantness and beauty. Experiencing God and all his benefits is for David a place of immense enjoyment. This is the God David serves. He's a God who is and who gives incredible happiness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And David would say, Clive Staples, yes and amen. That's what C.S. stands for. That's why he went by (laughs) C.S. David has found in God everything he needs. Throughout this psalm, David is unabashedly pro-pleasure. He wants delightful things for himself. And he finds it in God alone. I wonder, I wonder, Christian, if that sounds a little discordant to you. So when you hear the words pleasure, delight, God, do those words together play a beautiful melody for you? Or do those words together sound like a bunch of bad notes, a sour chord? Our, our sinful hearts constantly tug us away from God and tempt us to find delight in lesser things. But God is after our ultimate joy. And he gives us that joy when he gives us himself. He is our portion. And with him we have every 
children in Christian homes, though I think all of us might know the feeling, that heaven will be like a long church service. Why look forward to heaven when it's just going to be like this? Sands wind forever. But I think that fear about heaven simply reveals to us our thoughts about God himself. This, this fear that following him will mean giving up all chance at fun. So a few weeks ago on our uh, Zoom Wednesday night inductive Bible study, we were thinking about heaven. And we were talking about this fear particularly. And, and we laughed together at this quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, our belief that heaven will be boring betrays a heresy that God himself is boring. And there's no greater nonsense. Our desire for pleasure and the experience of joy come directly from God's hand. He made our taste buds, our adrenaline, the nerve endings that convey pleasure to our brains. Likewise, our imaginations and capacity for joy were made by the God whom some imagine to be boring. Are we so arrogant as to imagine that human beings came up with the idea of having fun? Church, God created fun. God created delight. And the place we find that delight most fully is in him, himself. That's where David finds it. And in verse 3, amazingly, David also finds that joy in God's people. Did you catch that? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, for the Christian, delighting in God and delighting in God's people are not two completely separate things. Instead, they're like different levels of the same thing. We delight in one another, even with all our quirks and flaws, because we see the image of the God we delight in being more and more formed in each other. That's what we love in each other. We love God in each other. So Christian, do you find delight in other followers of Jesus? Do you treasure the holiness and growth and love you see in them? Church family, we see David's search for joy and delight all throughout this psalm, and we see he finds it in God. So isn't it wonderful news this Easter morning? That God is not only after our obedience, our submission, our service, as important as those things are, but he's after our joy. Obedience to this God is a joyful obedience. Submission to this God is a delightful submission. Jonathan Edwards called the enjoyment of God the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. He spoke of other joys, family, friends, and he said they're great, but they're just shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. And there in verses 9 through 11, we see some of the most soul-stirring verses in all scripture. David says his heart is glad. Don't we all want that? He says his whole being rejoices. Don't we long for that? To have our whole selves caught up in enthusiastic joy? He says his flesh, his physical body is secure. What do we want that? In verse 11, he foresees a future of endless life and joy and pleasure. Man, everyone can get on board with this vision, right? But in verse 10, we see something that so often destroys all hope of future joy. There in verse 10, we see that old grim reaper raise his ugly head. That reminder of death that so often brings our joy grinding to a halt. 
David speaks of Sheol, the place of the dead. And friends, usually death is the ugly period that brings a sentence of joy to a grinding halt, a close. But not here. Amazingly, even death is no killer of David's delight and pleasure and joy. Why? Our final point is David's descendant. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So David's saying to God, you're not going to leave me in death. You're not going to let me see corruption. But here's the problem. David died. David's bones rotted. David's rule ended. Things went on. Solomon sort of started messing up the kingdom. And then David's grandson totally messed it up. And David stayed dead. So is David's hope in Psalm 16 misguided? Is this psalm a grand example of how religion is kind of an opiate for us? It can only help us for a time before the inevitable comes? Perhaps someone, perhaps someone, someone like you, perhaps someone like someone you know might look at this psalm and say, that's great, bit convenient, but great. I mean, you're scared of death, right? Christians are scared of death like everyone else. They're scared of the uncertainty of it, the pain of it, the meaninglessness of it, the loneliness of it. And so they've invented this God they can trust who won't leave them in death. And they write psalms about him and they use that system of belief as a, as a crutch when the fear of death would overwhelm them. Cool. Great. You do you. If that's how you make life meaningful, if that's how you can face death, more power to you. My friend, there's no comfort in that. If that's true, we are of all people not most to be happy, but most to be pitied. Because we've wasted our lives on a fluke religion. And we put our faith in something false. We're pathetic. And we deserve not your affirmation of our belief, but your pity for it. Unless, unless this belief in a God who can rescue you even from death is not just an abstract system of thought, not just a religious crutch, but actually a historical fact. Unless it historically took place that God actually did deliver from death. See, if we leave Psalm 16 merely with King David, we see his joy and his hope. But then we see his bones, just a few years later, lying in a tomb. And we're tempted to think it was all a mistake. But in fact, we cannot leave Psalm 16 merely with King David. We need to see Psalm 16 through the eyes of a greater king, a son of David, one whom God promised an eternal reign. We need to see Psalm 16 as a psalm of David's descendant, King Jesus. So I did not include this in your printouts, but if you have your Bible or your phone, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 records the first sermon the Apostle Peter preached as the early Christian church started to develop and take shape. Acts chapter 2, following Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. Acts 2, and we'll start reading in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, this is a public sermon. Hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's where we left off at our Good Friday service, right? Jesus is dead. His bones lie in the tomb. He's been crucified. He's been buried. Death has won the day. But hold up, Peter's not finished. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now get this. For David says concerning him, that's Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Sound familiar? Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, the verses we've just been looking at. The verses King David had written centuries earlier. The verses he had written before dying and being laid in a tomb. So what's Peter's point? He's saying, you know Psalm 16. You know Psalm 16 better than anyone. King David didn't write that merely about himself. He wrote that about Jesus. That's what he says in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about, this is the theme of Psalm 16, the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. You see Peter's argument. Psalm 16 is a psalm not ultimately about King David, but about King Jesus. Jesus is the true singer of Psalm 16, the one whose heart was truly glad in his father, the one whose flesh would dwell in hope. Why? Because even though he died under God's wrath, he was raised up by God's power. God did not let King Jesus alone in death, but raised him up. And get this. Because that's true of Jesus. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus has defeated death and rose again from the grave. Because that's historically true. You and I, Christian, have unshakable hope. Because Jesus has trailblazed the death-defeating path before us. We too can follow him in the path of life. Because Jesus has entered once for all into God's presence to enjoy him forever, we too will one day enter God's eternal presence fully and experience what Psalm 16 calls fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate this Easter morning is not just a feel-good story. It's the rock-solid basis of our hope. Yes, the words we used at the beginning of our sermon to describe the best life we could imagine, adjectives like joyful and pleasurable and peaceful and secure and hopeful, yes, those words can describe our, our lives forever. 
because Jesus has won eternal salvation for us. On a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, death was robbed of its star prisoner. And in that resurrection, death was dealt, death was dealt a death blow. By dying under God's judgment, Jesus took on death. He bore our sin. He took our judgment. And in doing so, he bore the death our sin deserved. But then he rose again. And in rising again, he showed his death was effectual. His death had truly beaten our death forever. And if you and I, friend, will trust in him and what he did for us in our helplessness, if we will repent of our sin and trust in his death in our place, we will find new life in him, a life forevermore. Oh, we may still die. But death is no longer a punishment for those who are in Christ, but instead a doorway to life. To a life in God's presence where there will be a fullness of joy forevermore. If you're with us this morning and you've never put your trust in the death-defeating Savior, your death will still be yours. Not just your physical death, but your spiritual death. Oh, won't you turn? Place your trust in Christ and have him bear your death in your place. And Christian church family, rejoice. As we'll sing after the Lord's Supper, our king has crushed the curse of death and we are his forever. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts yearn to grab hold of this truth more fully this Easter. And so we pray that you would do that for us, for our joy, by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would unite our hearts in the Lord's Supper now as a church family. That we might feast on the risen Christ.